Welcome everyone to the podcast Unanswered Questions with Pastor Tim Cole. This is a podcast where we talk about tough theological and Christian living questions sent in by people just like you. Our hope is that listening will strengthen your confidence in God's Word, helping you to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. If you have any questions, please send them to questionsforpastortim at gmail.com. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Unanswered Questions with Pastor Tim Cole. Today we're canonically looking at the book of Samuel and asking the question, was David's anointing legitimate? That's a quite of a long question that I wish to answer uh, on this particular podcast. So thanks for listening. And once again, those kinds of questions often are not even thought about or asked by Bible students when they plow through the stories of First Samuel. Um, <clears throat> those don't seem to be relevant questions, but they are important questions to the writer of the book. And each time we read a book of the Bible, whether from the Hebrew Bible or the New Testament, it is important for us to ask and answer the question, what is it that the writer is trying to tell us? What is his point? What is his message to his readers? The question is not, what does this text mean to me? It really doesn't matter what it means to me. What matters is, what does the story mean to the writer? What point was he trying to communicate? And every writer is trying to communicate a point. Every writer is trying to communicate some sort of theology, some sort of teaching on a particular subject. First Samuel is no different. Originally, uh, the books of Samuel were one book, and it's only later that it was divided into two sections, just like one and two kings originally was simply one book. But the writer of the book called Samuel definitely has a purpose. And one of the purposes is to write about the story of David, which begins basically in chapter 16 when the prophet of Israel named Samuel is told by God to go to Bethlehem. And he is told there to go and to invite Jesse and his family to the sacrifice. And so if you've been a part of youth group or been a part of kids club or some sort of Christian education class, you remember the story of Samuel uh, coming to the house of Jesse and there to anoint God's choice of David. David had many brothers. David was the runt. He wasn't even at home at the time. He's out in the field taking care of the sheep. And so that story <clears throat> then begins the saga of David. David is anointed king over Israel. But of course he doesn't take the throne. He's just a young kid. There are many events that need to transpire before he takes the throne. And besides, Saul is the king. Saul is on the throne. And what transpires for the next few months and years is a story of competition. Saul is threatened 
by David. Saul is threatened by David's presence, his skills, his battle skills. And if you remember the stories from Samuel, David is on the run. David is being chased. He's being chased by Saul on a number of occasions with intent to kill him. <clears throat> what a careful reader of Samuel, or excuse me, of the book of 1 Samuel, and specifically the story of David, will begin to notice are some repeated patterns from prior history. That's right. Now, this particular approach to Bible study is what we call a canonical approach, a canonical Bible study. But a canonical Bible study is nothing new. In fact, it's the way the Bible was originally written by its inspired authors. The problem is, is that Bible students have not seen it because they've not observed the patterns from a distance. For example, for the last hundred years, the dominant form of Bible study is to study the context or the historical background of the passage. And as a result, most Bible stories are left in pieces. It's just mishmash and goulash, and we have little left of the text. Now Bible scholars are realizing for the first time that characters are portrayed as another character. And more importantly to our episode or our particular podcast today is that the life of David is a mirror image of earlier characters in Israel's history. Uh, Bible students are just beginning to realize that, even though it's been in the text now for some three and 4,000 years. But Bible students are finally waking up. One Jewish scholar, for example, whose name is Robert Alter, um, a scholar that I used many years ago back in the late 80s when I was pursuing my first doctoral program, I found this in the library, The Art of Biblical Narrative by Robert Alter. Robert Alter was professor of Hebrew and comparative literature at the University of California at Berkeley. He was a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences and a recipient of the Robert Kirsch Award for Contributions to American Letters. And his book called The Art of Biblical Narrative contains a paragraph which is germane to our topic today. He writes, quote, It is a little astonishing that at this late date, literary analysis of the Bible of the sort I have tried to illustrate here in this preliminary fashion is only in its infancy. By literary analysis, I mean the manifold varieties of minutely discriminating attention to the artful use of language to the shifting play of ideas, conventions, tone, sound, imagery, syntax, narrative viewpoint, compositional units, and much else. The kind of disciplined attention that through a whole spectrum of critical approaches has illuminated, for example, the poetry of Dante, the plays of Shakespeare, and the novels of Tolstoy. The general absence of such critical discourse on the Hebrew Bible is all the more perplexing when one recalls that the masterworks of Greek and Latin antiquity have in recent decades enjoyed an abundance of astute literary analysis so that we have learned to perceive subtleties 
of lyric form in Theocritus as in Marvel, complexities of narrative strategy in Homer or Virgil as in Flaubert. I'm sorry for the complexity of those sentences. He is a professor of Hebrew. <laughs> and what he is telling us is that the study of the Bible in the way it was originally written is only in its infancy. Imagine, after all these thousands of years, we're now just beginning to understand how the Bible was originally written. It's amazing. And we're discovering the same thing in the New Testament. It's only today, here in the early part of the 21st century, that we are learning how to read the Bible as it was originally written. And this is impacting the way we interpret the Bible. So much of what we have previously tried to interpret has been completely wrong because we have not understood how the New Testament writers wrote and how the Old Testament writers wrote. That's a long PS to, to get us back to the subject of David. And the question is, how do we know that David was the legitimate ruler of all 12 tribes of Israel. Well, first let's talk about how David is compared to earlier characters in the Old Testament. And this, this question and this issue helps us to understand the question about David's legitimacy as king over the 12 tribes. Um, <clears throat> if you read the story of David, he is much like the story of Jacob and the story of Joseph. For example, in chapter 16, David, of course, is anointed by the prophet Samuel. And the depiction of David is that, first of all, he's the youngest son of Jesse. He's the runt. He's also the one who tends sheep. He's a shepherd. He's also depicted as handsome. Those three things, he's the youngest, he's a shepherd, and he's depicted as handsome, are the three characteristics that the writer of the story of Joseph made note of. And then when David is anointed by Samuel the prophet in chapter 16, that is an indication that in the future sometime he will eventually sit on the throne of Israel. But it takes a number of years before that becomes a reality. The same thing is true of Joseph. He too was the youngest son. He too was a shepherd. He too is depicted as handsome. And even though he had dreams as a 17-year-old boy of other people bowing down to him, even his parents, even his brothers, uh, nevertheless, he remained uh, subjugated for a number of years before he eventually sat in Egypt's court as second in command. So the story of David's rise as the youngest is a repetition of the story of Joseph's rise as the youngest from a position of lowliness to being either a king or second in command to a king. And in both stories, both Joseph and David are successful and they find favor with people around them 
in the king's court because God was with them, explicitly made mention of. So there is a pattern that began in the story of Joseph, and then it's repeated in the story of David. But I want to focus more on this particular podcast with the comparison of David to Jacob, who is Joseph's dad. <laughs> That's right. Not only is David portrayed like Joseph, David is also portrayed like Joseph's dad named Jacob. So I want to give you some hints, first of all, in how the writers begin to portray David to look like Jacob. David's pattern repeats the pattern of Jacob. For example, if you'll remember, Jacob had to negotiate to get the woman that he wanted as his wife, and he had to negotiate with the man who would become his father-in-law named Laban. Then, after a period of years, Jacob fled to return home. He had been sort of in exile for a period of time with his uncle Laban. He had served all the years necessary to gain his wife, Rachel. He then fled from his uncle Laban surreptitiously, and he did it with the help of who? Well, he did it with the help of Laban's daughter. That's right, Rachel. She had a hand in helping Jacob escape. Well, this is the same thing that happened to David. David negotiates with King Saul for his daughter. And eventually, after a period of time, David also fled from Saul. And who helped him? Well, in the same way that Laban's daughter, Michael, helped Jacob escape, so also Michael, the daughter of Saul, helped David escape and make good his escape. So this is just one example of many where the writer of the story of David in his early years is being depicted as an earlier patriarch by the name of Jacob. And the question is, well, why is he doing this? Why is it necessary for the writer of the story of David to show that in many ways he is just like an earlier patriarch in Israel's history by the name of Jacob? In fact, Jacob is the founding father of Israel. He is the father of the 12 sons who became the 12 tribes of Israel. So the writer is connecting David, who is on the run, but anointed to be king. The writer is connecting that boy, that boy David, who's a shepherd, in some way to look like and act like the founding father of Israel, whose name was Jacob. Now, what I want to do is to summarize many other facets of the story of David and Jacob that are obviously parallel, that are obviously connected, that obviously show there is correspondence between the two people, even though they're separated by many years and by many generations. There are repeated patterns. Notice, for example, 
that in the family of Jacob, four of his sons vie for succession. That is, they vie to be leader of the family. Four of them, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. And it's the last one mentioned who succeeds in becoming the, the patriarch or the one who inherits the blessing, the last one. Well, in David's family, there are also four sons of David who vied for succession to the throne. Amnon, Absalom, Adonijah, and Solomon. And just as the case with Jacob, where Judah, the last one, succeeds, Solomon, the last one, also succeeds. One of Jacob's sons, Reuben, sleeps with his father's concubine and is eliminated from contention. In the same way, one of David's sons, Absalom, sleeps with his father's ten concubines and he is eliminated from competition for succession to the throne. In both families, there is rape. Uh, Simeon and Levi avenge the rape of Dinah, their sister, by murdering the man responsible for rape, whose name was Shechem. Genesis 34 verse 2 says that Shechem took Dinah and he lay with her and he degraded her. Well, uh, Absalom avenges the rape of Tamar, his sister, by murdering Amnon the rapist. 2 Samuel 13, 14 says that Amnon took Tamar and he degraded her and he lay with her. Exact same words used of Shechem taking Dinah. Uh, when Dinah's brothers heard, they were upset and they said in chapter 34, verse 7, Shechem has done a foolhardy thing in Israel, and such a thing is not done. Tamar said to Amnon, the one raping her, such a thing is not done in Israel. Don't do this foolhardy thing. Dinah's brothers say that mixing with the uncircumcised men of Shechem would be a disgrace. And Tamar, the one raped, by Amnon said it would be a disgrace for her. As we look at the aftermath of both of these tragic events, the man who degraded Dinah dies violently at the hand of her brothers. And the man who degraded Tamar dies violently at the hand of her brothers. Jacob once was a strong father, and now he's weak, and he does nothing about Dinah's rape. David, too, once was strong, but now he has become weak. He is a father who does nothing about Tamar's rape. You see what's happening? As the writer writes the story of David, David's rule, David's problems with his family. He's repeating the pattern that was begun in the life of Jacob, who also had problems with his family. The story continues on 
uh, with more tragic events, more issues that show parallel. For example, the son of Jacob, Joseph, is the innocent victim of violence by his brothers, and he wears a coat of many colors. Tamar, in the family of David, is an innocent victim of violence by her brother, and she wears a coat. Uh, her, he wears a coat of many colors. So uh, the life of David is a repetition in many ways of the life of Jacob. It seems as if David, as the king of Israel, is being deliberately and intentionally portrayed as a new Jacob, as another Jacob. Let's remind ourselves, who is Jacob? Who is Jacob with respect to the nation of Israel? Well, he's the founding father, literally. It was his 12 boys, his 12 sons, that became the 12 tribes of Israel. So, let's get back to the question and bring this particular episode to a close. The question was, why are the writers of Samuel, or the writer of Samuel, intentionally drawing correspondences with earlier people in Israel's history. Why, specifically, does David look like Jacob? Why does the house of David look like the house of Jacob? Why are patterns being repeated in these two men's lives when they're separated by years and years? They did not know one another, obviously. Jacob was dead and gone when David showed up on the scene in Israel. Why would God do this? Why would the Holy Spirit inspire the writers to make these correspondences between characters? Well, they're not accidental because this thing goes on hundreds and hundreds of times throughout the pages of the Old Testament, and it occurs all through the Gospels. And we're only discovering that right now. So the question, Mr. Mr. Writer of First Samuel, what are you doing? What is your purpose? Well, what the writer of First Samuel is doing is showing us that David, despite his flaws, despite the delay, despite his youth, despite the fact that he's the runt of the litter, the youngest son, unfavored, overlooked, by Jesse, his father, overlooked by the prophet Samuel, despised by the nation in the next chapter when he faces Goliath. No one would have thought that this young guy had any chance against this Philistine giant named Goliath. What the writer is telling us is that David's life is connected to the founding father of the 12 tribes of Israel, and it shows that he has a legitimate right to sit on Israel's throne, governing and ruling over all 12 tribes. So David's legitimacy as a royal king on Israel's throne is shown to be valid by showing us that his life looks like the life of the founding father. That's the way Old Testament writers argued their case. That's how they made their point. They show us with stories. 
They don't tell us explicitly that David has a right to be ruler over all 12 tribes. Rather, they show it. They show us repeating the life of Jacob. And the reader sees these patterns and realizes, well, one pattern repeated is, is maybe a coincidence. But when things begin to repeat themselves over and over and over again with astonishing accuracy, you realize the hand of God is on the text and the hand of God is on the young man, both Jacob and David. Despite their foibles, despite their weaknesses, their sins, they are connected in the mind of the writer, and the reader can see it. The reader can say, once it's pointed out to them, once people understand this way of writing, they can be sure that David does have a right to sit on Israel's throne, governing all 12 tribes of Israel. I won't cover it now. We're out of time, but this is then how Jesus is shown to be the rightful king of all the 12 tribes of Israel in the same way. Jesus' story repeats the stories of the shepherds of the Old Testament. We will d delve into that on another particular episode of this podcast. Thank you for listening. Thank you for joining us this episode, and remember to send all your questions to questions for Pastor Tim at gmail.com.